Gresham College presents The Environmental Challenges of Megacities by Professor Carolyn Roberts. Welcome to my fifth lecture on an environmental theme this academic year and uh, welcome to, for people who are not here, but to watch these uh, lectures later online. This, uh, and also there's some people downstairs as well, sadly, in the basement watching on a screen, so hello to you as well. Um, this evening I'm hoping to take you on a journey across the world from London to some of the other large and indeed the largest cities in the world to prompt you perhaps to think about how they are evolving today, to speculate on how they can or will function in the future and to consider the environmental limits that might constrain them. Sixty years ago, the prescient science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, who's a personal favourite of mine, uh, described the Earth after the passage of a thousand million years of human history. The oceans have passed away, deserts encompass the globe, mountains have been ground down to dust by the wind and the rain, because he had no conception of plate tectonics at that time, and humanity is clustered into one giant city, it's called Diaspere, and it's an intricate labyrinth of brightly coloured spires and towers in which almost everyone lives an internally focused life, frightened to look out from the parapets. Now, as a hydrologist, a water resources specialist, I rather liked the six-mile diameter circular river, which, of course, nicely violates all the laws of thermodyna- uh, fluid dynamics. But I was, I was much less impressed by the assumed all-male governance arrangements Some things were, from the perspective of the 1950s, unimaginable, of course. Despite this, even the women of Diaspora are not, in the main, unhappy. And the citizens occupy themselves by playing virtual reality games based on sagas of the past, a kind of, a sort of immersive Downton Abbey, I imagine. And uh, physically isolated from their friends in small rooms, but associating in cyberspace. Apart from the fact that they live for centuries, life is not unlike some 21st century British teenagers, I suspect. But there is a difference. The infrastructure is entirely controlled by a giant computer whose memory banks hold the patterns for creating any object that is required, rebuilding the structure, supplying food and water, entertaining people, and meeting those other basic needs that were so ably identified by Maslow in 1954. They meet the needs apparently through some form of 3D printing or holograms. Now, although the sanitation arrangements in the city are not described, robots do the dirty work, and the citizens, anyway, no longer need to know how the city works. It's The time, if you remember, is a thousand million years after the advent of humanity. Physiological and safety needs, as defined by Maslow, and indeed some of those needs that Maslow thought were higher in the hierarchy, are being met in Diaspora. Everything is smart, secure, stable, static, and under constant surveillance. Diaspora is, of course, almost an anagram of despair. And despite the security and the cosiness, it's a dystopian prospect. I won't spoil it for those of you who want to read the book, except to say that most of them get out all right in the end. 
but diaspora is, uh, is diaspora a glimpse of the near future for emergent megacities today, or will they perhaps simply be deserted as the environmental challenges become too great? Perhaps it will take some huge jolt, some form of environmental catastrophe, to break humanity out of what seems an inevitable journey towards an unpleasant future of one sort or another. I'd like to think about these inherent urbanisation trends and issues and explore how megacities and their inhabitants might respond in a logical way. At one point in our novel, our hero looks down at his megacity from space. You might want to recall that the first satellite that we know about, Sputnik 1, was in, was in 1956, still 12 months away. Today, anyone can look down from a vantage point on a satellite to the coastlines, the rivers and the estuaries that have provided such an attractive spot for settlement over the last hundred years. And they can see the 37 cities that are the homes of 10 million or more people. Indeed, if the present trends continue, there will be 50 megacities, large cities, by 2030, and seven in 10 of us will live in one by 2050. This is the Greater Tokyo area, over 1,300 square kilometres of high-tech, buzzing, sophistication, neon and heritage. It's the largest megacity on Earth, with 38 million inhabitants, and growing about 3% or 7% over the last decade, depending on the source of your information. Definitions of exactly what is city, of course, will vary. On balance, Tokyo is not an unpleasant place to visit, but people do commute exceptional distances, mainly using a very good public transport system. Tokyo does, though, have environmental problems, including an ever-present risk of extreme flooding, because not only is it on the coast, but it's on an alluvial fan at the end of a steep river. Here you can see some apartment blocks. Tokyo apartment blocks are often built these days on massive embankments. The ever-present risk, uh, ever risk of flooding, as we see on here, is managed in a combination of ways by flood barriers, which is the upstream of Tokyo, this is part of the system, and a system of cavernous cathedral-like vaults, which are supposed to accommodate the water should the big one arrive. It, the water can be pumped into these, pumped out of the river, and dropped down below the city, and then pumped out the other side. To me, it felt extremely risky, and I worried when I was there about the chances of a power failure as well as a flood. Megacities, as we see, tend to generate mega-risks. You can see here on the left, here the, one of these mega-leves with an apartment block on the top, you will notice that the older properties down here, of course, are not on the levee. With 24 million inhabitants, the New York metropolitan area is the seventh or eighth largest megacity, displaced from its premier position in the 1950s. Again, its growth rate is relatively slow, at 3% over the last decade. And like mega, many megacities, it is dangerously close to the sea. Some pictures here, it's power hungry, and actually this 
this one here, I can't uh, actually recall which is the proposed new skyscraper. I think probably the triangular one. But it's hard to tell. Um, it's dangerously close to the sea. And in fact, if we, uh, if we consider, start to consider sea level rise, which, as you can see on this diagram, is, is uh, consistent. Uh, this is the three-month sea level estimates. Uh, and uh, the dark blue line, which is the later one, is based on some data from the University of Hawaii. Uh, you can see uh, sea level going up over the period from the um, uh, likely the 1880s through to uh, uh, the, current, uh, the current century. Um, the rise in sea level is, is relatively slow, but it is very persistent. And um, if you look at what might happen with, let's say, a three-metre rise in sea level, you start to see patterns like this. The three-metre sea level rise is going to inundate some parts of New York. And if you go for seven metres, it's going to inundate some very large areas of New York. This is the sort of figure that has been occasioned, uh, could be occasioned, by warming climate, followed by thermal expansion of the water and collapse of the polar ice sheets. And it would be likely to wreak, clearly, some devastation over a period of decades, particularly in combination with storms. Sea level, at the moment, is currently rising at about three to four millimetres a year, but it, it does vary locally. And just for a bit of fun, I put this one in, um, which is what happens if you put in a 60-metre rise in sea level. And you can see there that uh, the Trump Tower there would be uh, charging premium prices for a sea view, uh, just, I think, on the foreshore at that point. More seriously, a rise of a metre within the next 100 years is actually more likely than not. And insurance companies have been sufficiently concerned to have commissioned the UK consultants Arup and the universities of Liverpool and Birkbeck College in London to report on it. The implications of a nine-metre rise, such as was associated with the elevated ocean temperatures of 125,000 years ago, and in fact the ocean temperatures then were similar to the ocean temperatures today, uh, they are modelled to have serious consequences for the UK and for London too, in part because of the potential collapse of the Antarctic East ice sheet. So, as we see from the image here, it's not advisable to take a long mortgage on a house in Peterborough, probably. London is, uh, was the first city in the world, I believe, to have over a million inhabitants, and it's not, in fact, on the megacity list at all, according to some commentators today, because its spatial extent has been halted by the Greenbelt, perhaps mercifully, some people would say, although with a population of 8.6 million and a growth rate twice the national average of the UK at around about 5 or 6%, it might make the 10 million megacity threshold by 2030, not so long. Its age demographic is also interesting, uh, rather mirrors actually I think what we've got in the room here tonight. Uh, uh, an increasing number of residents over 65 combined with an increasing and magnetism really for young immigrant professionals. London is, according to the European Digital City Index, top city in Europe for innovation. And it has many other Western megacity <laughs> characteristics too. The steel and glass towers, the crowded transport systems, the air pollution problems, 
and the heady mix of heritage and modernity. It's a place, oh, there, yes, that's right, there you see the Thames waterfront, it's got that mixture. Um, Tower Bridge there, um, offering the same perspective there. Uh, I'd say it's a, it's a palimpsest, a mixture of old and new. If you turn around from that view of Tower Bridge, does anybody know what you see if you turn around from the heritage picture? The shard, yeah. So, the 95-floor shard, fourth largest building in Europe, and it's screaming about power and symbolising the aspiration for any modern megacity to grow upwards, away from its historic roots, if it cannot grow away outwards, or in fact, even if it can. And I think it's one of the... Oh, yes, and new, new developments all over the place, this one down in... Uh, near the dome. It's a place where, too, you can see signs without any irony intended at all, signs on this, like this on an office window saying heritage of innovation, whatever that means. Um, what it does imply, which perhaps is not evident from the phrase there, is that the growth of London is still essentially steered by the pattern of investments that were made in Victorian rail networks, still the same underlying pattern. Now, our satellite view, however, would quickly show that it's not the cities of the West that are the most obvious today. Whilst today's longer-standing megacities mega cities include Tokyo and New York, China has at least four, some of which have grown up at a truly extraordinary rate, planned on paper or screen to take rural immigrants in their millions. This map here just shows you megacities over 10 million people or more at some point recently. The change is going on so quickly that it's difficult to keep up with it. And uh, this one shows you the growth rates, some of which are extraordinary. So there's Tokyo, um, there, uh, New York, and Dakar, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Um, those Chinese megacities... Um, oh, sorry, the, the Asian cities dominate. The ones in blue there on the picture, absolutely dominant if we looked at the world from space. Shenzhen in China, we looked at that, was only a fishing village a few decades ago, and now it has over 12 million people. It's a city without a history, according to the Asia Society. And more is planned. Sorry, let's get that one. More is planned sort of multiple shards, as it were. <coughs> India, too, has lots of megacities, um, and uh, Delhi, Mumbai, and, and Calcutta, and, and they're elsewhere as well. Several aspirant cities in the Middle East have the most novel designs and the highest aspirations as well. But it's Dakar in Bangladesh that is the fastest-growing megacity with the highest population density. Some 60,000 square kilometres, no one really knows. Uh, sorry, at some 60,000 people per square kilometre, because no one really knows, because the census tends to miss the shanty towns, it's a density higher than Gibraltar. Figures courtesy of the Guardian newspaper earlier this week 
who had a thing about population density in Gibraltar. It has a population of some 80 million, 18 million, I beg your pardon, and half a million migrants arrive in the city from rural areas every year. Dakar typifies the environmental challenges of many developing world unplanned megacities such as Karachi, Delhi and Lagos. I'll spare you the noise from now, but you get the general idea. That was recorded in uh, January, I think, this year, by me. Whilst many of the megacities of the West and the Middle East are wealthy, sophisticated centres of high finance, spectacle and entertainment, more typical global megacities present themselves as sprawling, filthy, polluted, messy, overcrowded, noisy, squalid, unsafe and disease-ridden. Their transport systems seem chaotic, as you saw, and choking, and they are ringed and in Dakar penetrated along every channel and lakeside by vast areas of impoverished slum dwellings, lacking clean water, sanitation and reliable food supplies. Soils and air are polluted by industry, vehicles and the press of humanity. And the biggest megacities are also some of the most inequitable and segregated. I'll come back to that slide in a minute. You see this one here. This isn't actually uh, Dakar, but megacities have lots of inequality manifest in their form. This one, for example, is in, is in South Africa. Um, there is a so something called the Gini coefficient, which suggests that widening inequality may be an inevitable aspect of megacity growth. It's also, um, as we see from this picture, it's also potentially subject to flooding in a serious way. That's the implications of 12 metres of sea level rise for Bangladesh, which would have the effect of removing most of the country, in fact, if it were not defended. But many megacities in developing areas are also exciting, energetic and optimistic places. And there's no doubt that they, find that they provide ladders of opportunity for some landless farmers to become firstly the peddlers of those rickshaws and then to move on upwards to a better life. There will be winners and losers, of course, but literacy levels are rising rapidly in Dakar whereas only 50% of, uh, of the total population can read, young megacity people are much more likely to have had an education. And new city centre traffic schemes are at least moving some of the Dakar congestion further out, even if not to any leafy suburbs. Dakar has little equivalent to London's metro land. So despite becoming ever more crowded, Developing world megacities continue to grow outwards and upwards in an organic and controlled and uncontrolled way. This is an interesting image uh, of the Earth at night, but adjusted for the population in different parts of the world, the areas representing different populations. You can see megacities coming here, through here very clearly, Cairo, for example. Like London, Developing world megacities generate a great deal of enterprise and innovation, and that's surely going to be needed if the future needs of their citizens are to be met. 
Now, it seems to me there must inevitably be some environmental or other limits to this growth. If present trends continue, then something will presumably have to give unless better urban systems can be designed and planned to be retrofitted into largely historic settings. Dhaka is equally a historic town uh, in the same way as London is. We have to make assumptions about the trends in the same way as Arthur Clarke made assumptions about automation and artificial intelligence and the role of women. These assumptions may be unrealistic. If we consider Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the modern context of the megacity, then some higher level human needs could in theory be relatively straightforward to meet if the time and the money is available. Some needs are essentially non-material. They don't need much space. Love, for example, and friendships, for instance, can be tenable even in crowded and otherwise unpromising circumstances. Cultures can flourish too, and people do not inevitably become alienated and depersonalised in megacities. Communications have been revolutionised almost everywhere by the advent of the mobile phone. The technology is relatively cheap, and it reaps immediate rewards, allowing people to manage their lives more efficiently and become more productive in whatever sphere they choose. Television and other digital services are widespread in megacities. The citizens of developing world megacities can not only communicate with each other, but they can and do interact across the world, as the image here of 10 million Facebook friendship connections shows. Although North America and Europe dominate, megacities in Europe, uh, megacities in Indonesia, India and South America are linked on an international scale. Access to information is clearly an important requirement for personal growth and self-actualization from Maslow's hierarchy, but one that seems likely to be met effectively by crowdsourcing of ideas. Now, some needs, though, cannot be dematerialized or made digital. And we're going to need logic, and we're going to need to think again about some of them. Some means of transporting goods and people is going to be needed. Whilst human interactions can be done over by the phone or by video conference, some... Many more require people and goods to move around. Why do they need people and goods to move around? Well, shops and restaurants, even ones with unfortunate names like this one, <laughs> still need to function, and people still see a need to get to them. Transport systems are amongst the most obvious areas where megacities can literally grind to a halt as more and more people and private cars try to squeeze through the arteries that were built and indeed planned with the needs of only a small fraction of the current population in mind. In the West, technology-brokered solutions are increasing. Almost 50 years ago, one of, the per one of the first personal rapid transit systems was developed in West Virginia in the USA shuttling people around between the formerly gridlocked city of Morgantown and its university campus in large numbers, very efficiently and electrically. 
The technology was developed by Boeing, and the software to run these individual driverless cars apparently emerged from the now obsolete Minuteman, Minuteman missile system, which is slightly worrying. Um, actually, my family found it huge fun when we lived there in the 1990s. It was a theme park ride twice a day for my children. The PRT, the Personal Rapid Transit System, was revolutionary, and it is still functioning, thankfully, with some soft software upgrades. But, but we are now seeing glimmers of developments that are alleged to have the potential to transform the shape of transport in megacities. Changes occurring faster than we might ever have thought possible. This is public transport in one of China's cities, and China already has a maglev train that rides uh, above the rails on a magnetic, uh, uh, held up by um, repelling magnetism. Never mind the gig economy of deliveries on bicycles, pizza, coffee, and shopping are already being delivered by drones on the ground, in the air, or both, alongside the perhaps more worthy cargoes of medical supplies. You can make your own judgment, I think, about whether this is a viable way of meeting ba basic megacity needs, or whether it is metaphorical, uh, as well as literal, pie in the sky. But the technology already exists, and in some parts of the world, it is operating. On-call autonomous cars, safer than those driven by humans, are very close to being with us too, notwithstanding the challenges of insurance and being hacked. Perhaps we will have multi-passenger commuter drones in a decade if Airbus is to be believed. That's a render of what they are planning, apparently for 2027, a decade away. Or and I'm going to show you a little piece of video now, personal travel pods. In less than 20 years from now, more than two-thirds of the world's population will live in cities, and many in mega-cities with more than 10 million residents. One of the drawbacks will be gigantic congestion. Many cities are already facing that, where time has become an increasingly rare commodity. So Airbus and Ital Design have linked up in a groundbreaking venture to imagine solutions. And the concept they've come up with is called Pop-Up. Pop-Up is a new mobility concept. It's multimodal. It combines ground with the air. It allows passengers a seamless and faster way getting from A to B using the city sky. It's a partnership between the airspace and the automotive sector. Two powerful sectors that come together to develop new technology, new concepts, for uh, the future of smart cities. What they've come up with is a modular concept that can both fly autonomously using electricity and travel on street level or even on other modes of transport, such as hyperloops. Using an app, passengers will be able to order the two-seater capsules from the airport or train station, for example, to their final destination using this kind of transportation system. While for the time being the project is a concept, something which looks very similar to this could be a reality within seven to ten years from now. Because Airbus, with its extraordinary We Make It Fly know-how and Intel Design, one of the most innovative players in the auto industry, are highly ambitious. Who knows what other partnerships could emerge? Why are they all so young, I was thinking. Anyway. 
Leaving aside transport, and you might reflect on whether that would work in Dakar, I don't know where you would land, actually. Leaving aside transport and some of the associated noise and safety issues, I want to reflect on the other, more explicitly environmental challenges of megacities. I've grouped my consideration into the four traditional clusters, earth and growing things, fire, that is energy, water and air. It's impossible for me to address all of the challenges, but here are a few. Urban residents have to be fed, and megacities currently draw in food from vast areas around them. Most food, not all actually now, is still grown or reared. We're all familiar with the concept of food miles and the common aspiration to minimise this for a variety of reasons, such as carbon emissions and freshness. But how would this work in a future megacity? Where is the space to grow the food? Not least because in older settlements, soils are frequently contaminated with the waste of previous generations' technologies. Food is already being grown in some unlikely locations, such as underground tunnels below Clapham and rooftops. Urban farming is increasing in scale, certainly, and in sophistication. But whether it currently provides a fifth of all the food, as alleged by some proponents, is, I think, questionable. There's not too much of it, uh, not too much sign of it, sign of that in Dakar, where experiments with rooftop vegetable production simply attracted hordes of rats. In the West, where there, be, where there may be no other way than up, experiments are being done with vertical farming in the city, crops being produced in controlled light, nutrient, and humidity conditions. Salads, again, it's salads are also being com produced commercially using hydroponics in constrained and vertical spaces. There may be some potential, though. The diet may be rather restricted. Another aspect of Earth is the waste material that megacities jettison as landfill. Whilst recycling is growing in acceptability, and indeed in some developing world megacities, almost everything is picked over and resold by the poorest people in society, there remains a problem of space, either for sorting or storing, for composting organic waste, or for energy recovery by incineration. And even if recycling is growing, which it is, waste volumes are also still growing. Citizens buy and throw away more as they become wealthier in the megacity. Developing world megacities are drowning in rubbish filling their rivers and coastlines with a ghastly mass of mixed plastic paper and filth. In the developed world, we, conversely, fill our sewers with fat bergs, but I'm going to spare you the image. With energy needs, the key issue is, again, whether enough light and heat or cooling in some megacities, plus some extra power for appliances, can be generated locally to make buildings self-sufficient. Engineers and architects say that, in theory, this might be true with high levels of energy conservation, but that means new buildings only. If there are efficient solar panels on roofs and walls and improved battery storage. Wind, tidal, wave and hydropower are generally out of range and scope in the megacity, but anaerobic digestion of organic waste and its conversion to gas or ele electricity might not be. Nuclear energy might not be needed after all. But there's still a lot to do with renewable energy technology to achieve that level of production. And energy infrastructure remains necessary to bring power into megacities. 
outside in the streets, and we tend to assume that there will still be streets in the future, electric cars are being presumed by almost everyone and are developing very rapidly, as we know. Water is even more of a challenge. I like this picture of New York. Um, whilst flooding is an ever-present challenge in many areas, and I'm not going to talk very much about flooding today, in China, 30 of the 32 largest cities in a country of megacities have permanent water shortages because of the high levels of basic demand and the pollution of local resources. Per capita demand for water increases with wealth, and wealth generally increases in megacities, as we've seen. The opportunities for capturing large amounts of rain or groundwater locally in megacities are very limited, although not absent, as planning for sustainable drainage schemes, what we call SUDS, demonstrates in the UK. However, watersheds in beyond the city boundaries have to be better managed to yield and store more water, provided that that can be achieved without compromising their ability to hold back floodwaters in storms or to sustain agriculture and ecology. We do know something about this from research, and we know about the role played by vegetation, rewilding of rivers, and reductions in competing demand from agriculture. That's what we mean by blue-green infrastructure, which is something I'll be talking about in the next academic year. But there is no doubt that per capita demand for water in growing megacities will need to be massively reduced, and ageing infrastructure in western cities, or the lack of it in Asian megacity slums, replaced. Now, of course, the overall reduction in demand may be achieved by fixing leaks, or in fact with some revolutionary sanitary appliances in the West, such as this one. This is a company called Propolair, who have a re revolutionary toilet, um, which saves huge amounts of water and is already operating in our megacity here in London. Perhaps if we banned power showers, we'd make some progress as well, because peak demand is a problem. So it's not just the total demand for water, it's the peak demand that's a problem. Now this, this diagram is taken from an ancient piece of research. Uh, it's a diagram that in my view has never been surpassed. And it's, it shows you what happens in a typical working week in a suburban area of the UK. So you can see the days of the week along the bottom and the level of demand for water. Demand surges in the morning and then it falls away here it surges in the morning, it falls away in the afternoon, there's a peak for supper time, and then there's some other peaks later in the day, reflecting the TV schedules probably, particularly on a Saturday night. And then here at the bottom, everyone's asleep, but there are leaks. And you can see if you look closely, this is a really interesting piece of sociological research because Monday morning, everybody has an early start. By Tuesday, Wednesday, they're falling off. Thursday, it's not so much, a bit more spread out. Friday is pretty hopeless, and Saturday, and then it picks up a bit on Sunday. Um, and um, you can see, too, things like Friday night being bath night. Uh, this is done some years ago. Probably is not the case today. But you can also see people putting on the television, uh, sorry, people watching the television on Saturday night, putting the kettle on at half time in the big match, um, and flushing the toilet, and so on. 
There's another one here, focusing in on one evening. This is in Edmonton, in Canada. Uh, and you can see what happens during the Olympic hockey final. The peaks and troughs mirror the pattern of the game. Now, it matters. It matters because unless there are restrictions on the supply of water, then pipes and local reservoirs have to be large enough to accommodate two or three times the average flow. And that's expensive and takes a lot of space. So, water brings me to air, and I, something I lectured on recently. Um, air quality appears to be an insuperable problem in all megacities, even those Chinese cities that are so tightly planned. Uh, NOx gases and sulphur dioxide and particulates and a, a heady cocktail of other gases from vehicles and industries that were the subject of my lecture um, exist in the air. Human health is inevitably compromised. Now, bearing in mind, sorry, there's a picture that I took myself, the, the background one, in, in China from the top of a, 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 a skyscraper in Chengdu. Uh, it's uh, shocking. Now, bearing in mind these environmental challenges, how will megacities look in the future in 50 or 100 years' time? We, of course, are not passive recipients of the future, but we have a hand in shaping it. Now, let's take the transport example, where three alternative mobility scenarios might be envisaged, depending on the way society operates. So the first one is very simple. People get around using highly planned, green and efficient public transport. Just think about the megacity pictures that I've showed you. So that's the first possibility. The second one is that petrol and diesel-fueled cars dominate and rich people pay extra to beat the jams or they have a driver and they work in the back of the car while the car is being driven or rather the car is creeping along. And then finally, the third possibility is that transport is personalised and people move about in a range of small electric vehicles, not public transport, but electric vehicles that they rent, or souped-up bicycles or scooters or pods. Okay, now those are three distinctly different transport scenarios. We might, of course, add another possibility that people's ability to travel is restricted or constrained and that they choose not to do so. They choose not to travel, however unlikely that seems. All these alternatives have been represented somewhere in my narrative this evening. Now, similarly, if we move away from a single sector and begin to think about the whole megacity environment, what will that look like? Well, for the UK, the Natural Environment Research Council and the Charity Forum for the Future ran a series of stakeholder workshops on this last year and produced three city scenarios for the UK. They were entitled Greater Harchester, which is this one, Market Newton and Little Langbrook. And they were looking, I think, 25 years ahead. What did their stakeholders think the city and the mega city of London would look like 25 years ahead? So this first one, this first image, if you look at the picture at the top, you can see in it people cycling, you can see various kinds of shops. The co-op is still there, incidentally, which good, I was thinking. Um, and um, you can see a street that looks rather like today's street. And remember, this is 25 years ahead. Uh, it looks to me suspiciously like South London, the street. But um, in this first scenario, 
What has happened is that UK cities have become politically and culturally powerful. These cities have restructured their financing and integrated systems at city and regional level. So they have brought transport, water and waste, for example, together. Think about mayors, okay? Powerful cities with mayors. This is the scenario. There's a strongly utilitarian ethic that provides high quality, extremely efficient mass solutions. Policy in all areas, transport, energy, food, is structured around improving public health and lowering carbon emissions. Now, to do that, we have ubiquitous technology saturating the urban environment and taken completely for granted. It gives the managers of the city real-time, detailed pictures of what's going on in the water system, the energy system, the transport system, and so on. And it allows for complex coordination of services. Data sharing is widely accepted as a necessity for this high-quality service. Big data and behavioural nudging, as we've seen in examples from the British government or recently, are liberally deployed to solve complex urban challenges and to maximise public health and well-being. So that's the first potential scenario. The second one is a high-tech, highly integrated world. But it's a world of inequality. The Internet of Things in this scenario, those tracking devices that know where everything is, the Internet of Things is everywhere, and virtual reality is commonplace and widely used for work and leisure. People wear devices that gather data about their health, their eating habits, and their leisure, and then they sell this information to private companies. There are high levels of automation and correspondingly high rates of unemployment and inequality. A large section of society survives on a very small basic income topped up by sporadic work in the virtual economy. Cities, in this scenario, are private, sector-led, and what the uh, NERC and Forum for the Future called pay-to-play. There's a huge choice in terms of products and services on offer. You can have anything you want. Somebody will sell it to you, and public services are minimal. So that's the second scenario. The third scenario, this is Little Langbrook. Again, we've got the street. This one says, we've got a low-growth global economy and continual low public spending. But many UK communities have found a way to flourish through a philosophy of living better with fewer, more durable goods. Life is still facilitated by technology, but very much grounded in physical spaces that heritage that we touched on earlier. People value the ability to connect with each other in person without technology. They want to meet each other. And UK cities are dense, but centred on small, self-contained communities, perhaps something like Tokyo. Urban services are integrated on a small scale and by repurposing existing infrastructure. So we don't rebuild 
we just remake it slightly. Things are often locally run, and they include everything from health to energy to food, perhaps even to water. Citizens lead on innovation, and it's enabled by manufacturing technologies that are distributed around and digital platforms again. It's an egalitarian scenario. But inequalities remain. In this case, some communities are wealthy and resilient, whilst others lack access to resources and struggle with economic and climate shocks. Now, those three alternatives worked on by groups of stakeholders describing megacities, western megacities, 25 years ahead, they all suggest certain things will happen. They all, if you look carefully at the picture, have drones. There's one up there. Something up there, yeah. They all have bicycles, I think. I don't know whether there is one. Yes, there is one on the right there. And they all seem to be populated almost entirely by young people. And I think, actually, all the scenarios are rather depressing. If I'm honest, rather unimaginative. By contrast, they, drew, they draw on new technology to manage the environment in different ways. And they em emphasise integration between different types of system, transport, food, energy, water, waste, and so on, uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Now, those are some future scenarios what I want to end my lecture by considering is whether megacities can be sustained and whether they can function happily using what Will Self described in uh, the London Review of Books at the end of last year as a hodgepodge of bike hire schemes and superannuated hippies growing tomatoes on Brooklyn rooftops. Transpose that to London and what you just saw in the images there. Now, my own view is that in order to support human life, megacities will need to become bionic. We talk about the food-water-energy nexus, that area where human systems need to interact effectively. Now, the Venn diagram here shows uh, the possibilities. Some of our technological efforts are taking us part of the way towards that sweet spot where systems are synergistic. So, for example... Stormwater runoff here is being managed to the benefit of food production and also um, for the benefit of um, managing water in cities. Okay? There's an interaction there. We can also get uh, food production managed in a more synergistic way. A look at this one. You can see the shard there in the background. This is an example where a set of systems are being managed together. In this case, um, there are, this is a, 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 a farm called uh, Grow Up Farms, run by young people, and it integrates the production of food with locally generated water, fish production, and the management of the waste from the fish as a nutrient for the, for the farm. Uh, and it recovers some energy along the way as well. So we're seeing in this example something that's moving us closer to the centre of that diagram, something that's moving us slightly closer to the middle of that, that sweet spot, the centre of that food, energy, water nexus. There's another example here, which perhaps appeal to 
some of, some, of, some of the older ones amongst you. This is nutrient and heat recovery from wastewater in a whiskey distillery in Scotland. It generates power as well as producing a highly marketable drink. Um, so we've got examples where technologies are addressing more than one need at the same time in the city. Water companies, for example, are generating energy from sewage. They're not just treating wastewater, they are generating energy from, us, from it. And there are many other examples of these two systems being joined up productively and to good effect. There are, I should say, though, relatively few yet with three or more technologies and sectors being joined together. The, uh, the EU describes this as a nature-based solution, but the writer Melissa Sterry rather elegantly describes this bionic nature in these words. She said, it's a symbiotic relationship or symbiotic relationships spanning from the molecular to the metropolis in scale. So the buzzwords for bionic megacities are smart and sustainable. That's the EU definition there. And there are some companies, there's one here called Albion Water, some of you may have come across, who are actually trying to manage water, waste and energy as a whole with landscape and so on. And they have um, uh, areas of which they manage in the UK today. They did have a go at doing something in London, actually. It wasn't particularly successful, but they seem to have got the message right now. Now, what, what is interesting, I think, with this is that architects, by contrast, sometimes seem to be operating in different realms altogether, with conceptions of the future that do not relate to that kind of concept of sustainability. Here's New York, for example, extended for an increased population using its own waste material as a raw material. Is that sustainable? I don't think so. Vertical forests feature very strongly in architectural visions of the future megacity, allegedly to address air pollution, as here in this drawing of a skyscraper in Nanjing. And I can't help wondering what happens in a very high wind, uh, because the root depth seems to me to be rather shallow. But um, uh, that's Nanjing, or this one, which I particularly like, in New York, where the robots, which you can see here, powered by, in some cases, by tiny little solar panels, I think they are, or there's one, there's one up here, which is powering this huge train, um, seem to be about to run over the pedestrians in their green canyon, and the train track runs dangerously close to the children, I think. Um, or perhaps this kind of thing. If, there's real, if we're really tight for space, other habitable environments under or on the sea that would reduce the pressure on megacities. It's not been built. <coughs> Looks pretty horrible to me, a bit bleak. Um, I like the, uh, there's one flower, or two flowers, I think, if you look. And it says here that the, uh, the renewable energy is optional. It doesn't say what would happen if you didn't have it. But um, the worst pictures, oh, there's, there you are, there's a diagram. You see it's fully functional, but uh, uh, you might like to think whether your child would enjoy playing there. Uh, I suspect not, a bit restrictive. Um, so, as an architectural conception, here's another architectural conception. This is uh, to insinuate uh, extra dwelling space 
into this case Milan. Um, so here's the, the new house squeezed in between the existing houses. Here's the top of it with its, apparently this is a roof garden. Um, and I particularly like this one. This, it's, the walls are made of mesh. And if uh, in, the, in the blurb that the architects have produced, it says, grants residents a sense of privacy, but apparently not in the bathroom, which also has mesh walls. Now, um, that, those floating habitats and that extra space uh, is a bit worrying, I think. Um, you could say perhaps even London could be extended with a floating area, a whole new meaning to the Westminster bubble, I think, this one. But um, when we look at future survivable megacities, based on the evidence that I've reviewed tonight, the supporting ideas and the technologies actually need to be evaluated against five criteria. And I've got them on here. The cities need to be organic with integrated systems. So transport, food, water, energy, waste management and soil all need to be managed together. The systems need to be circular and recycle water, other resources and nutrients. They need to be low energy and resource efficient. They need to be long-lasting and durable. That's bubble gum, by the way, or gobstopper in the picture. And they need to be resilient to sudden shocks, climate change, for example, or the large storm or the economic shock. Now, in many cases, these characteristics are those that have evolved in the natural environment. So we might describe them, as do the EU, as nature-based solutions. And if we can't manage that, if we can't manage to get our technologies to address these particular characteristics, whether it's in London or Dakar, we may be left living as barbarians in the ruins of our megacities, much as in Arthur Clarke's later chapters. Now, personally, I think technology has a large role to play in achieving those goals for megacities. And I would very much disagree with Thoreau when he contemplated the stresses of future travel by train at 30 miles an hour in the middle of the 19th century uh, and, and, uh, and was distressed by it and feeling that technology was just an improved means to an unimproved end. I'm going to disagree with him there. I think megacities are centres of innovation, and that's actually really what, we, what we're going to need. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.